Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Kalia Yeagle. We recorded this last week over Skype, and I recorded my musical parts afterwards. Shout out to Phil Blank, Get Up in the Cool's newest Patreon supporter. Thanks, Phil. It means a lot. And thanks to everyone who keeps the lights on over here at Get Up in the Cool every week. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash getupinthecool, or follow the link in the show notes and find a support level you can sustain and get some exclusive rewards for doing so, like this week's bonus track with Kalia. We play Cowtown Rag, and it's great. You don't want to miss it. All right, enough business. Make sure to stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with Kalia Yeagle. But first, here's our interview and jam. Enjoy. Leah Yeagle, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. What was that tune? That was that amazing. That tune is, um, well, it's called Patty on the Turnpike, one of many patties. This particular one, the Powers family recorded, so Cowan Powers was fiddling that one. Huh. I don't think I, I, don't think I know that patty. Yeah, it's a. She's a fun one. I highly yeah. recommend getting to know her. It's a that B part in particular always feels um, just very free and rhythmic in a way that I enjoy and is kind of fun to sink into. And I don't I think it which was, ones. I forget which ones A and B is the B one the one that goes dun 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 dun, dun and it just keeps doing that yeah. little thing. <laughs> Exactly, that thing. And I, I don't know if it was intended to be like a Fiddler's Choice situation, but sometimes, uh-huh. depending who you're playing it with, it's kind of fun to like to sit on that little hitch Why for not? as long as you feel like. Yeah. Do, do the powers uh, play it for different lengths of time, that little part? Or I don't keep think so. As far as I can remember, it's been a while since I touched base with that particular recording, but I think, I think that he's pretty consistent in in his his parts Uh, but it feels like it lends itself pretty nicely to a to a little i mean it's already a little asymmetrical so why not exaggerate that sometimes Uh if you're feeling it yeah where did you where did you hear that tune do you get your tunes from source recordings or do you get them from people or from people and then you check back to the source (laughs) uh i mean i you're a professor so I'd imagine that. You, I Can mean, you enunciate like you that this. just a little more? So, you profess yeah. the fiddle in old time <laughs> music, so. Um, yeah. Um, y- yes. Well, initially, my gut reaction to what you just asked was that well, people, 
people are playing on those source recordings. So, of course, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I, I'm learning from all the people, but I, I hear you. I get where you're coming from. I originally heard that tune from my colleague, Roy Andrade, who uh, has been heading up all things old time at East Tennessee State University for a long time. And he's especially good at really celebrating regional music and music that really comes from this neck of the woods in East Tennessee and the Powers family is from pretty nearby. We're really up in this tiny little corner that's really close to Southwest Virginia and parts of Kentucky and also Western yeah. North Carolina. So a real hub. So that's how I originally heard that tune was from him and he was talking about kind of the magic of, of that particular Patty on the Turnpike and then, and then we dug into the recording and I got to know Cowan Powers is fiddling. Are you saying Cowan? Yeah, Cowan. I think it's C O W A N. But it's a I've really been told good name. I've been told I'm supposed to say it as like one syllable and I keep forgetting that like Cowan. Yeah. Okay, cool. When did you start uh professing <laughs> old time music? <laughs> yeah. Um I began as an adjunct teacher at East Tennessee State University. Ooh, I can't remember now, maybe four years ago. Hmm. Um, and I'm just wrapping up my second full year as a full-time faculty member in the program there. Um, and then I haven't always just taught old-time music, and I don't just teach old-time music in my current life either. Um, so I taught for a while before then, and I ran my own private studio here in East Tennessee and would teach at kind of camps and workshops. Um, so the years, years before that, but I don't work as much with kids anymore. So that's, I guess, a distinction, a thing that's changed. And um, my teaching spaces look different, right? I'm spending time in, well, I was spending time in classrooms, physical classrooms, um, which is a different, different kind of vibe. But yeah, so yeah, this is uh, second full year there at ETSU. They have a, for folks who aren't familiar, East Tennessee State University has uh, a music program specifically devoted to bluegrass, old time country, and Scottish and Irish music. And old time music, whoops, uh, most importantly, that fits yeah. in there too, yeah. I actually was unaware that they did um, Scottish and Irish music as well. That's great to know. They sure do, yeah. There's a wonderful woman named Jane McMorrin who kind of heads up that side of things. And actually, right now, we're just in the midst of kind of unveiling this brand new curriculum and a new, a new way that the whole program is structured, which is pretty exciting. So there's a lot of new coursework that's going to be offered and sort of the options for undergraduates who want to maybe major or minor. They just have kind of some new focus tracks that they can dig into Scottish and Irish studies being one of them and old time music now too you can um it's like one of the focus tracks you can minor in it now too I'm trying to think about like if I were to if I were to apply for a university as an old time musician what would I feel like I would <laughs> what would I feel like I would need to do in order to feel, um, I guess, like authoritative enough. It just seems like a lot of pressure is what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way to like press some of my insecurity buttons oh, there. Oh God, sorry. Uh, no, no, it's really fine. It's just, I sometimes sort of can't believe that I'm in the position that I'm in. I feel tremendously lucky. This is, yeah. like this job doesn't exist everywhere. Like not everyone can just go it's work a cool in job. a system of higher education and get to talk and teach old time music all day. Yeah. Like it's a freaking dream. And, I, yeah, what makes me more qualified than anyone else to do that? I don't really have an answer to that. But, but I do love this music, and I love teaching, and I love learning, and I like being able to just open doors for people in a way and just mm. learn how to get people to ask better questions. Um, I think that old-time music is already such an inviting world and sort of invites people to be such active participants and active researchers like independently that it makes sense i think to to support that in in a higher education setting like it it just i don't know it, it feels right and it feels like it appeals to a lot of young folks in particular who have gotten bit by the bug and are curious to kind of explore new paths. Um, specifically why I'm like, I don't know, why I'm qualified. I think I will say one beautiful thing about this particular program is that 
there's a lot of room for not just academics, but for people who engage with music in other ways professionally. So that rang true for me, right? Like I spent a long time touring and playing in bands and performing, and I still spend a lot of time doing that. Um, and fortunately, in this particular higher education institution, that's a perk. Like that's yes. that's the thing that makes me Good. valuable to that program. Hmm. When you say like opening doors for people and getting them to ask better questions, uh, I think that's a really interesting idea. Like, what <laughs> what are better questions about old time music? Ooh, great question. Yeah. Well, I sort of feel like learning to ask better questions is the purpose of college in, sure. in a lot of ways, right? Sure. Is to is to learn to think critically. I think a lot of people think about that. But also just, yeah, learn to figure out what interests you and how to dig deeper into that. So I feel like that's a lot of what I spend my time doing, especially when I'm working with students one-on-one and in, like, band settings, right? Because those are really situations where... Um, there's sort of, it's a very comfortable space and you're engaging with your instrument. It's very personal, right? There's something yeah. very intimate about that process of learning. And so it's really fun to figure out for individual students, like, what is it that is like, what is it that sparks, right? And how do we sort of find that and figure out a way to dig into it a little more? I guess that's mm. what I mean. It's like recognizing what interests you and learn how to sort of pursue that, how to, yeah, go down that path a little further than maybe you would on your own. It's like learn how to probe a little deeper or learn how to ask the how and the why questions a little more. I'm thinking about all of these questions that are in the culture now that are even more mainstream about like ownership of culture. Thinking about like, I don't know, certain rhetoric that I've heard uh, thrown around about academics in old time music. Does that play into your teaching? Because you're not just teaching tunes i'm assuming i'm assuming you're also teaching the you said the how and the why you're teaching the context of the music are are there like common like sort of misconceptions that you or do you have like non-musical goals like cultural goals for like how you teach people to engage with this music or what does that look like yeah i think my perspective on that is partially informed by the fact that in many ways I still feel like an outsider to old-time music and old-time culture. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and did not grow up playing old-time music. I wasn't like, you know, like the hills of Alaska are not where (laughs) this music originates, right? There's a lot of incredible music born and bred of Alaska, and I was lucky to grow up in a very thriving um, acoustic music scene, mm. um, but it's different I've, than I've like. I've heard that about Anchorage. Oh yeah, it's true. Very true. And uh, and actually, I think as we're speaking, I think the Alaska Folk Festival is happening or coming up or something. I've been seeing so. more Alaska folk activity online recently. Um, but yeah, it's super thriving. But all that to say, like I discovered old time as like a teenager I just started dipping my toes in because Mm. some of my friends were and I was learning that um like oh there's this other like there's there's something about this music that makes it distinct and that is called old time and that people it's this also this social experience because people are talking about these very specific festivals and places I've never been to and they're talking about workshops and they're talking about specific people right who are thought to be the the big names of this thing that's called old time music so i started exploring it um but i've also i've never been the person that lives and breathes clifftop (laughs) i'm the person that attends swananoa and augusta and all the you know the kind of buzzword places that i think have become um really significant in how we understand the contemporary old-time community. Sure. Um, So I've navigated it in my own way and non-exclusively. This isn't the only music that I find fascinating and that I like to play and explore. Um, Anyway, how this relates to my teaching is that I, I guess I don't necessarily feel comfortable saying that I'm an authority on what, on how old-time music um, 
I don't know, on defining exactly what it is. Here's the box in which it fits. And here's the way that we translate it in our classrooms at East Tennessee State University. Rather, here's the doors I can open for people so that they can figure out what old time means and how it fits into their own life. Because clearly, there are so many ways that you can engage with this music. And there are so many ways that you can integrate the sort of social experience of it into your life, too. Um, So I guess one of my goals really is to do more expanding than narrowing, um, Mm. which maybe some people find frustrating, right? We love to define things. We love to have concrete parameters. And uh, And people in old-time music, especially early in their relationship to it, often want to know what the most authentic thing is. And they have this idea that if they keep digging, they'll get to some sort of source. And they have like a lot of those kind of romantic and maybe fraught ideas about old time music. And I'm digging for gold. Yeah. Some of that. Yeah, totally. That's a super pervasive idea. And sometimes there's beauty in that process, right. Mm -hmm. And trying to connect with, with tradition bearers. Right. And that's still something that I value and that I think is important. I mean, listening to people is like fundamental, right. To the way that we learn. Um, and sometimes we don't do a good enough job of listening to people, right? But so I think that there's value in the process, and that's still something that is part of what I do at East Tennessee State University, and that we have actually built into the new curriculum, not to keep harping on that, but like there's, you know, a whole course now that's just devoted to connecting with tradition bearers in our region. Like, you mm. go out and spend time, like, physically oh, in cool. their space and learning how to learning about that process, about what it means to be a part of exchanges like that. Um, Mm. So I do believe in that stuff. And also, I think that there are other ways to find value than just finding the most obscure, which is sometimes equated with the most pure or the most authentic or the most like coveted special thing. Mm. Yeah. I guess I would just be careful. I try to be careful in evaluating what feels more or less valuable. Yeah. And I think we can celebrate what people are discovering and celebrate these processes that people participate in without necessarily devaluing the way uh-huh. that somebody else learns and participates in the music. Wow. Uh Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. Uh, I'm asking you all these questions, <laughs> questions in part because, like, it's something that, like, I struggle with all the time in, like, doing this show because, like, you know, I'm putting myself in a position where, like, maybe this is pe- people's, some people's main access, you know, to, like, old-time music and ideas about it. And, you know, the things that I ask questions about or state uh, these days a little different than the five years ago (laughs) the things you know yeah Uh, yeah uh so it's like i it's just something that i want to know how people feel about and especially the idea of someone else who's um you know in a in a position where you're being specifically released to have a big influence on a lot of people totally i think um i think i'm very comfortable with the fact that i feel like a a learner and as still a student and still someone that's yeah and i would like to hope that we're we're all that way forever right (laughs) like um that this music and everything right that we participate in our lives that we're constantly growing and reevaluating the way that we used to think or used to talk um or used to play right and these are these are things that change and that's at the heart of this music too i know we love tradition yeah. We love it, right? And we love we love it so much. And also, I think it's okay to acknowledge that change and evolution and growth um, can also be at the center of tradition. Hmm. Well, what do you want to play next? Okay. <laughs> How about... Um, actually, I was thinking of this silly tune um, that... We actually only do serious uh, tunes on this show. Uh, bummer. And they okay, have to next. be really obscure and valuable. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so. Yeah, here we go. Okay. This one I actually learned from a student. She brought it to my attention, Lizzie Kalen, who's from Southwest Virginia. She's the one who taught me to say suava. 
I guess that's how you're supposed to refer to that region. Grateful to know that. I sound like such an old person right now. Um, Learned this from Lizzie, who learned it, who heard heard Earl White play a rendition of it. Um, Amazing, iconic fiddler who also makes his home in Suava currently. And he, she never knew where it came from, so we were doing some Googling together during one of our lessons and discovered this Pat Conti recording of it. Um, Yeah, and I highly recommend checking out that recording. Here we were thinking it was this, like, kind of adorable detune and kind of grooving out on it, and then we discovered this recording of it, and it's the most frantic musical experience I think I've had in a while, and it's glorious. Like, I kind of can't get enough of it. It's really, like, it's really satisfying. Um, I can't possibly deliver that rendition of it, so I'll just play it in its cuter, uh, jammable form. But I do highly recommend checking out the recording where he's playing every instrument, and it is played so fast. Um, Oh, it's amazing. But this is, uh, this is Old Cumberland. tune it is a neat tune it makes a certain kind of sense yeah it does make a certain <laughs> well put. Yeah. yeah i'm gonna have to borrow that phrase <laughs> it's like it's like yeah sure okay yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> why not <laughs> i think i heard that uh, some of the other tunes that show up in that particular collection were recorded there on the spot um and when i think about it like that i'm like oh yeah i could i see that <laughs> Yeah. Are you saying that's a Pat, a Pat Conti original tune or one that he collected? Because I know sometimes he does write. The way I saw it referred to made me think that he he wrote it himself. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm yeah really fascinated by that person, and i've I've heard I've heard certain people say that um, he would be the most interesting guest who would never want to be on the show. So I'm circling. <laughs> Maybe eventually he'll, he'll agree to do it. Um, when did you start playing the fiddle? And why and how? Excellent questions, Cameron. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm one of those people that started pretty young. I had a, a, a dad who played music. So I was around it a lot. What and kind of music? He played a lot of bluegrass music. He was... Um, one of the, yeah, really a part of the, the kind of bluegrass music scene in Alaska. And, um, yeah, so I think I've been told that I was four when I got my first fiddle and I feel very fortunate that I had a lot of freedom to just play with it all the time. It was always out and there's, I've seen like photos of me, like before I knew anything about what to do with it, I knew sort of where it was supposed to go and I would just mess around on it and sing with myself and um and just have a lot of free play time which i think is so important i think getting young people interested in music um it's just having it available you were actually interested in picking it up and messing around with it as a as a four-year-old that's what i've been told yeah interesting Were, (laughs) were you exposed to like other fiddlers like did your dad have fiddlers come over definitely absolutely yeah so i saw a lot of um instruments that show up in old-time and bluegrass music a lot. So I saw it a lot. So I had it modeled. My dad played just about everything except the fiddle. (laughs) So I'm not sure if that informed my choice of instrument, but he played banjo and guitar and mostly bass at the time. Um, 
but I know I was seeing fiddles around a lot. And yeah, my dad played for years, almost exclusively played like David Grisman cover music. Like it was mm. all dog music mm -hmm. all the time. Um, he played in this, this group, the Bernard Glansbeek Quartet or Bernard Glansbeek Quintet, depending on the, the lineup. And uh, yeah, so a lot of that music is ingrained in my psyche in a very fundamental way, even though I've rarely played most of that music in my own life, it's, it's all in there. And I have this kind of somewhat secret desire to like find an outlet for it in some way. Like I have the urge to play this music that I'm not totally equipped to do, but I feel like I could mm -hmm. summon it somehow. And I think that would somehow like fulfill me <laughs> in a deep way. Um, it's not anyway. like you kind of imprinted on it. Like, you imprinted so. on this dad music. And, uh, yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, even like the covers of some of some of the David Grisman albums, uh, like, like Dog and Nova, or was that the one? There's like a dog with maracas, like, and I just the art is like so vivid in my image. memory. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Of, uh, of course, it's it's stuck in your brain. Yeah, it is. It really is. So that was the, the kind of music I was around. And also just kind of, I don't know, a tot roaming around the halls of the Anchorage Folk Festival. That feels like where I grew up. <laughs> and also at a bunch of funky little Alaska folk festivals that take place around the state and are sort of this wash of dust and mm -hmm. midnight sun and rivers and rocks and beer in my head like that's that's what a lot of my childhood consisted of so I was around a lot of music and yeah picked up the fiddle and was lucky to have my first teacher who taught Suzuki method and also played some like swing and jazz music so she I think was sort of a sympathetic teacher and got that I was um existing in a space that wasn't just um about sort of classical technique sure. um so that was great. And plus the Suzuki method, as far as like classical training goes, relies so heavily on ear training that I think it, yeah. it was very beneficial for a young, a young fiddler. At any point, did you have to have some sort of like differentiation phase from your like f folky dad and the, <laughs> the music that he was into where you're like, did you have to explore something else? I mean, obviously you chose a different instrument right. than what he did, but... Yeah, you know, I've, so I've heard you ask this question in some of your other uh, interviews before, and it honestly, it makes me curious about, like, was that, was that like a fundamental experience for you at some point? Ha! <laughs> Turn it around on me. <laughs> um, like, differentiation with, like, I guess, culture and yeah. taste? Oh, yeah, big time. Except for my, except for my parents didn't do folk music. They they listened to uh, Christian music, like mm. Christian, um, some Christian gospel music, but like, uh, just a lot of radio Christian music. And I definitely had a big differ differentiation from that in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. Yeah, but part sure. of it was musical. <laughs> Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Not to put you on the spot. I was just curious because I've noticed hey, that's I mean, a theme. <laughs> that's and awesome. I, I think that that's, I mean, of course I think that's true for a lot of people. I think, I think I had a lot of, um, I got to experience a lot of independence as a child, uh, for better or for worse, mostly for uh -huh. better though. I really, I really think. And cool. I had a lot of room to explore musically. I had peers that also played string band music, which like how freaking cool! I got to be in like kid bands for most of my life. It's like, really cool. Growing up, yeah, which is the ultimate uh, exercise in musical ownership, right? It's just you and a bunch of other young people. Um, figuring out how to use your skills and ideas on your instruments together to create whatever it is you want to create with some gentle handholding, right, from, sure. from adults. Um, and that was incredibly empowering. And I think as a result, I, I don't know that I really had to go through a big differentiation phase because I had space to do that um, from so early on. Um, yeah. So it seems like having having your own musical community, essentially of peers, as a kid, was a big part of 
you not having to rebel against music because you already had your own your own space yeah exactly and it worked well enough that when i was a teenager i played in a band with my dad and like didn't hate it (laughs) like chose to do it um yeah so it something worked and i think what i think maybe what was more challenging for me Later on, once I moved out of Alaska, I moved to the East Coast to go to college. And for the first time, I didn't have that built-in network of of musical peers. And I realized that, like, oh, it turns out this kind of music, like, this community doesn't exist everywhere. And for the first time, I was like, oh, I have to, I have to like, find it. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to create it for myself, which sounds simple to do, right? Of course, right? You move somewhere new, you have to, like find your people and build your community. But that was uh, just a big, um, just a big (laughs) growth opportunity and a big step for me. And more kind of philosophically, I think it really forced me to re-examine what role I wanted music to play in my life. Because that didn't feel like a question that I'd ever actively posed for myself, because it was just there. yeah. What did you, what did you, did you come to any conclusions or are you oh. still in the middle of that? <laughs> Cliffhanger. Um, I, yeah, I have grown more comfortable re-asking that question of myself, which I think is a healthy thing to do. Like, sort of, um, because it, it really has shaped my life in such a big way, I'm teaching music and I still work in a band and play music with lots of people. So I'm in a position to be like, is this still serving me? Like, what is this doing for me? Um, what is it doing for my mental health? Like, is this, am I, am I still feeling fulfilled by this relationship with music? And the answer is still yes. And clearly you're renewing your vows every day. I guess so. (laughs) Yeah. But it, it just took some practice to be comfortable knowing that was a question I could ask in the first place and then having sure. practice just asking it and honestly answering it. I guess it is a little scary to ask because what if you allow yourself to ask that someday and you, and the answer is no, I need to take space from that. Then you have to figure a bunch of stuff out. Yeah. And and that sounds stressful. It does sound stressful. Yeah. yeah. I, okay, here's another... But it's good. <laughs> It is good. It is good. And this isn't unique to music, right? This is a process that I think a lot of humans go through with a lot of different things in their life. I, yeah. And I feel grateful. I feel grateful that both of my parents demonstrated sort of in a non-music, well, yeah, they both demonstrated that it's okay to reevaluate what you want to be doing with your time and with your life. Like they both experienced many career changes in their lives. And I got to witness that also Mm. growing up and what a great thing and what a helpful perspective to have on the world. They're like, Oh, it's okay to actually change your mind or it's okay to not find something fulfilling that once was. It's okay to explore something new. It's okay to start a brand new career. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I don't know specifically which um, generation your parents are part of. Um, but if they're in the same generation as my parents, um, I think older generations in general, well, their, their experience has been more like, what is your like vocation? And then you can kind of like predictably stay in that for the rest of your life or hold a lifetime career or something, you know? And, um, sometimes when I talk to people of those generations, they get a little bit stressed out with the the um the uncertainty and that sounds nice to have that uh have examples of people who are familiar with that um yeah because you just need to deal with it if you're in our generation for right. all of the for all of the reasons that we have to deal with that right <laughs> for not being able to count on things exactly and it isn't to say that it was always like a cozy easy thing for my parents to do but it, it it was, I think, like you said, just nice to s- just have a model that it's possible and that's yeah. not the end of the world and, like, yeah. you'll be okay. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Can we do another tune? What's, I'd what's love next? to. How about... Um, let's do... Oh, I know. Let's do one. This is A Great Eagle. 
a great eagle, just like the last one was a patty on the turnpike. And this one is inspired by the fiddling of J.D. Harris, okay. another kind of regional fiddler around here who was uh, very influential on some other regional fiddlers around here, including O.C. Helton and mm. Marcus Martin, I've heard, and also mm. um, Manko Sneed. So he was kind of a big uh, influential fiddler. He um, was from Flag Pond, Tennessee, which is just down the road, and was one of, I think, many musicians that's kind of moved to the Asheville area historically. Huh. And he was recording extremely early. He was recording in, I think, as early as 1924. Um, which I know when we talk about recordings and years, it's a pretty small little window. But sure. that's like pretty early in that window. So it's yeah. a fun example of some early, early, early fiddling, country fiddling. When you say he influenced all of those fiddlers, do you mean like he had relationships with those fiddlers or they were able to hear his recordings somehow? I think he was like a teacher. I think he was actually like a, a musical oh, wow. mentor in person. Yeah. Cool. I had no yeah. idea. I know. Super cool. Um, so he does this really beautiful gray eagle in the key of C. Um, yeah, doesn't doesn't Manko Sneed or maybe it's Marcus Barton have a tune that's listed as the original gray eagle? Ooh, juicy. Because mm. it seems like probably, maybe yeah. it's not. <laughs> okay, yeah, who knows? Uh, who knows? Yeah, if Max. maybe they got it from him. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I'm like missing... Um, like there's a piece missing. I don't always, I, I, I'm down to like explore and to tease out all of those details and figure out who learned it from whom. But I also, um, like don't care that much. Well, I'm sorry for boring no. you, Kalia. You can go on and just play the tune. <laughs> Be in the moment instead no, of stuck in fine. the past. <laughs> acknowledging that there really is such an urge we were just talking about kind of the panning for gold mentality yeah. and it is uh -huh. interesting i love thinking about like the actual personal relationships between these musicians historically but there's just certain times that i'm like like of course they said it was the original and of course that person said that you know like they wrote whatever tune that really came yeah. from like you know yeah yeah probably sure <laughs> but I do know that I really adore this particular um, version of Grey Eagle. I think it's really lovely. Did you say it was J.D. Harris? J.D. Harris. Great. Cool. Yeah. so sweet isn't it i know it's so nice and kind it's of like, like delicate yeah yeah it's like nice nice and sweet on purpose <laughs> i appreciate <laughs> totally. it a lot and i i wasn't really fully pulling it off but uh it's nice in some of the 
fiddlers from around this neck of the woods in these recordings you can hear them doing occasional little rhythmic bits with their bow that yeah. we don't often hear in what we think of as kind of the southern string band tradition hmm. um that i would more attribute to like scottish fiddling and that's was likely that, was that that little triplet that you did then totally yeah dig it or dig it yeah and i haven't practiced it enough to really just throw it in there when i want it but yeah <laughs> Yeah, and it's just this fun little percussive element that um, is really f just fun. I, yeah, it makes me want to like use that more often. Um, it's just fun. It really is. Can I say why fun more? Yeah. Why don't more people do that in this music? It's so great. It is great. And now I, yeah, so I associate it with Scottish fiddling and also kind of with some kinds of French-Canadian fiddling, too. That uh -huh. sort of active percussive bow work. Um yeah, I remember when I was in college uh, there for a little while, I decided I wanted to dabble in some more sort of folk styles of fiddling. And so I took lessons with this woman who played um, some Irish and Scottish and especially French Canadian fiddling, just because I wanted a little like primer on like, okay, how do I tease out the differences between these different kinds of music? And that was a big thing was learning how to do the percussive stuff. And I always remember how she got me to first experiment doing it and it had to do with like flinging my arm basically uh, it was just like this little t you like tense your muscles for a minute and then let your bow do the thing <laughs> it just it's like that little sort of jerk uh let your let your bow do the right kind of little bounce um that created the sound that you wanted rather than trying to really control like a full-on triplet huh so you're you're doing some sort of like tensing instead of going down up down yeah exactly huh and it works it really works yeah. and it's also fun i'm just gonna keep saying things are fun but it's really fun to do and it's easier i think to pull off at different speeds than really trying to to like articulate individual little bow strokes um anyway so i've been trying to experiment with that in settings like like that tune i want to ask about alaska i don't know very much about Alaskan culture um, or cultures I guess would be a more appropriate to say but specifically around like music and music that's not indigenous to there. You came to this you came oh my god <laughs> I'm gonna cut that out you came to the states is what I was almost gonna say yeah. that's so uh, awful <laughs> um, uh, excuse me <clears throat> you would not you be the first to <laughs> <laughs> to presume that Alaska is in its own little world. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. We sometimes refer to you down here as the lower 48. Mm, that's lovely. <laughs> that's, uh, that's perfect. Um, so you came to the lower 48 and started like making your own music communities and having to exert effort and, uh, <laughs> do that kind of thing. And I, at first, I was going to ask, like, did you have to change the way that you played in order to play with different groups of people? And, um, or, you know, like, leaving, like, the the pond of Alaska to, to other... The small pond of Alaska to other small ponds um, uh, in regions. But I guess... I am curious about that, but I'm also curious about, like, what... What do people play like in Alaska? Is there anything that you can attribute to being like an Alaskan sound when it comes to fiddling or singing or their interpretation of old time music? Yeah. Wonderful questions. I love thinking about regionality and uh -huh. sort of how different places sound different. What a freaking fascinating process, you know? Um, and I'll just preface this by saying that there's a, um, a really rich Athabascan fiddling tradition that exists in Alaska that is absolutely worth exploring and learning more about. And there's some um, great literature out that with which you can explore it. But when we're talking cool. about kind of the, the sort of folk music um, community of Alaska, um, especially within Anchorage, sort of like urban, urban folk music scene, so many people have moved to Alaska from elsewhere and brought their music cultures with them. Yeah. 
and as a result it's this hodgepodge of different styles. So growing up I would uh, I just sort of played fiddle and my understanding of that I learned later was like oh it turns out I know like a few Irish tunes and I play a few old-time tunes and I play some bluegrass tunes and oh it turns out I know a few French Canadian tunes and I also have a penchant for liking this like swing stuff and also jazz music that I learned by way of David Grisman and like the new acoustic music scene mm -hmm. so it's just this, this kind of bizarre tapestry but as a result when I moved out of Alaska um, it wasn't it it didn't feel too daunting to me to have to navigate different music scenes to be like oh I'm playing in this like kind of straight up old-school bluegrass setting and I have I have at least a little bit of context for what that can feel like or I know that I know how to make sounds that can fit into that even if my sure. sounds aren't traditional of that thing um, but as far as what makes Alaskan fiddlers sound like Alaskan fiddlers y years ago I remember um, when I first was developing an understanding of that I, I would hear other people mention that like oh yeah like there is kind of this there's something going on there like there's some kind of thing and I heard some people refer to it as like um, like maybe there, uh, certain Alaskan fiddlers would kind of swing a lot, like there was a lot of lilt in our playing. Um, I'm mm. thinking about people who were particularly influential to me growing up, and Frank Sullivan was up there for a little while and played in some bands with my dad, and I took some lessons from him when I was growing up. Most notably, I remember him teaching me wheelhouse specifically. So I think of, yeah. I think of Frank Sullivan and I think of Angela O'Dean, who played fiddle in a band called Barefoot um, at the time that was, she was a few years older than me. And so of course that was like peak coolness that she played in this touring band. Yeah. Um, so she was very influential on me. And I think about both of them, they're both very like bluesy fiddlers. Okay. And so I think there's some kind of like bluesy, groovy, swingy thing going on that's in there. And I also think that everybody up there seems pretty used to to absorbing a handful of different styles um, and that over time that sort of began to cultivate its own little ethos or its own little musical stamp. Um, it's honestly been long enough, like I haven't lived there in quite a long time so I feel weird. It could be, maybe it's different now, I don't know what Alaskan fiddlers sound like, but I do feel like it's worth, it's worth somebody taking a stab at defining it or comparing like I don't know, recordings of it. Someone could do a thesis on that. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been trying to like ask that question about Oregon or the Pacific Northwest, this part of the Pacific Northwest. I know you're yeah. the real Pacific Northwest, <laughs> so excuse me. Um, That's right. Uh, I'm not but, there right now, you know, so right, I, right, I'm right. not speaking for Alaska. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've been trying to figure that out, and it, it is a little bit difficult to answer what is the Pacific Northwest sound, if not a bunch of different influences from people who keep moving here? Um, but you also have to like, isn't that anywhere uh, except for the except for the people who didn't move there? And even then, they get influenced by people who come and bring their stuff. So, um, yeah. Well, like in our case, right? Like Russians apparently were like among the first people to introduce the fiddle, right? To okay. like. Native communities up there is, is how I've been told um, yeah. the story by some folks that play more kind of indigenous styles of music up there. And anyway, so like that was its own developing tradition, right. and I, and it's not like there's a complete divide um, between. Yeah, does it like, interface with uh, with the other folk traditions? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say not nearly as much as it should, which feels true of sure. <clears throat> the entirety of the United States. Um, but I do remember feeling its presence, just kind of native culture in general felt much more present and, uh, certainly not valued enough, but maybe more valued or more, uh, appreciated, yeah. um, than elsewhere that I've lived in the U S. Um, so I'm just adding that to the mix too. Like that's certainly there. And I think that our, our bordering with Canada, right. Um, that, there's a healthy influence of um, fiddle traditions and repertoire that comes from that part of Canadian fiddling as well. 
Um, sorry, I'm not answering your question. I'm just rambling. But you're right. No, Everywhere, you right, is the is this like tapestry of sounds? Like it's sure. we're just this puzzle of all these different whatever, like sort of the melting pot mentality, which I think. Yeah, maybe it sounds like maybe you're trying to tease out, like, yes, that's true, and, like, how do we... I mean, we... that's always the temptation, is to say, like, what is the thing that, you know, it turns into, if mm-hmm. anything. But then, I don't know. I, I, guess, I, I guess I'm more ad- admitting that, um, that, that I want those answers to exist. And that me maybe, too. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? We love parameters. Give me some definitions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice. Well, it's nice to have just the language to describe music too, right? Like that's a healthy thing. It's not a a, a bad thing to want to yeah. label what it is we're hearing. It can help us understand it in a deeper way. I guess I'm just uh, I'm relating. I don't have the answers either. I don't know mm. what to say, but I do know. I think I'm. I'd like to go back again because I, I do remember uh, starting to feel like I think it's been maybe five years since I visited, and it's been. Uh, quite a bit longer than that since I've lived there, but I remember the last time I went back to Alaska and heard some music playing and had spent enough time living elsewhere and kind of learning and developing my own sense of place elsewhere that I I felt the beginnings of like, ooh, I can start to hear the difference. Like there's there's Mm. something here. Like there is something that sounds and feels different musically. Um, So yeah, that makes me kind of hungry to go back and and explore that a little more hmm. and maybe speak with speak with folks who have been making music up there for longer um about their perspective on that that'd be that'd be really fun yeah i'm adding that, that to so my post pandemic agenda yeah <laughs> to throw it on the pile yep <laughs> okay let's do one more tune and then talk about where people go to buy your music or take lessons with you, etc., and then and then one more, one more tune to to close us out. Lovely. I'm kind of feeling uh, feeling the like sweet sweet tunes vibes tonight. That wasn't necessarily what I came in here intending to focus on, but I've been enjoying that mode. Maybe because uh, I know it won't sound like this to others, but be, playing sort of alone in this quiet space, I'm feeling mm. uh, like I'm playing. I don't know, like smaller. And something about that sort of lends itself to these uh, these kind of sweet tunes. So maybe I'll do another kind of sweet tune. <laughs> yeah, ra- raging by yourself is kind of a mood that it sometimes is. is good, you know. Yeah, but <laughs> I feel like I have to warm up to that, you know. I have to like set the set the stage or remind myself what it feels like um, uh-huh. to like occupy that space. Um, I know. Here's a tune I um, taught someone today that I learned some years ago from a human being uh, <laughs> and uh, at like a jam session at some festival and I thought it was just a great tune and I especially loved the B part because it had this it was a pretty streamlined part but it had all of these like pushed kind of uh, pushed beats that I thought were really fun to sink into and it's a nice way to to teach that concept of like oh yeah coming in before the downbeat that's what this feels like um, and then years later, I was teaching that version to someone, and I was teaching someone who was really good at kind of sleuthing and really enjoyed the process of figuring out um, the origins of these tunes. And he discovered a, an earlier recording of it by a Texas fiddler named P.T. Bell, and the Field Recorders Collective, um, they have a available recording of this online too, or you can just buy the album, which is great to do, buy a CD from them. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, and there's a third part, turns out, and it's a nice little um, addition to the to the family, addition to the family of parts, because it really says something different, um, and is very kind of marchy and melodic, and cool. um, yeah. Okay, so this is uh, Sugar Sugar in the Coffee, by way of P.T. Bell, and Great. whoever I learned it from at a festival years ago.
That is so sweet. That is a really sweet tune. <laughs> Isn't it? I know. Plenty of sugar in that coffee. There's uh, Sugar in My Coffee O, the Vesta Johnson tune, is very popular, at least around here. Uh, yeah. I just played it the other night, someone called it. I think it only has those two parts. I don't think mm-hmm. it has that third part. Surprise! Yeah. Yeah. And and the pathways and the parts are totally different. Really? That's, yeah. I mean, if, if I can remember right. That's, I'm just saying that's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Bring, Thank you. Go forth and, yeah. Ah, gold. The, <laughs> we mm-hmm. dug for gold. <laughs> so where do people go to buy your music and follow your music and learn your music sure yeah i play in a band called bill and the bells and Mm. while we don't strictly play uh like old time string band music we're all such big fans that come from that background and that was very uh foundational to the origins of the band so it's it's in there and uh we're actually we just announced we're releasing a new album um, called Happy Again that comes out on May 21st and you can pre-order it right now through our website which is billandthebells.com that's bells with an extra E in there B-E-L-L-E-S yeah. so that's where you can learn more about Bill and the Bells and what we're up to and especially that new album and you can also find us on all of the social media platforms I'd love to see you there and as far as my teaching um I'm available to teach, and you can email me if you'd like, which is my first name dot my last name at gmail.com. That's kalia.yagel at gmail.com. And also you can uh, look up the program that I teach in, the Bluegrass Old Time and Roots Music program at East Tennessee State University. And we have all of our new curriculum, which we're very excited about, that's currently posted on the website. So that I highly recommend. That was a tall teacher voice. I'm new sorry. curriculum. It's <laughs> like been the singing such a the big thing project. When you're excited. It's so great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it. it's, it's like, it's a thing that a lot of people have put a lot of energy into for a lot of years. And, um, mm. I think that these courses are going to appeal to a lot of people. And um, so I'm just excited about it. Go read about them. Go check them out. Ask me more questions. If you have them, reach out. I'd love to talk about old-time music and anything fiddle-related. Oh, and I also teach through the Handmade Music School, which is a music school based in Floyd, Virginia, doing wonderful things. They um, especially do a great job of celebrating the kind of regional music culture of the Floyd area, and they're just incredible community builders. They're kind of connected to the Floyd Country Store and also County Sales, that's kind of a little family of of musical operations that is such a hub. Oh my goodness, it blows me away. Um, And I'm just honored to be sort of affiliated with them. And I, uh, yeah, so check them out if you're curious to take lessons on any of the string band instruments. They have a pretty remarkable roster of people, including a lot of folks that you've had um, on this show. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get the rest of them someday. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, for playing music with me and talking with me. Heck yeah. Thank you for reaching out and for sharing some time, especially these days. Any any little extra dose of connection, I think, is especially welcome. (laughs) It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. What do you want to do for the last tune, Kalia? Let's see. Um... I was thinking about maybe doing this funky version of Forked Deer. Great. That's pretty fun. That has like the familiar parts, I think, that a lot of people play, the main two mm. parts, and some bonus, like three parts stuck in the middle um, that are uh, uh, a lot of fun to play. And it's this interesting example of where, um, so it's in the key of D, right? And it has this section that is, is sort of implying a six. A six chord, which is something we're used to adding, I think, in right our contemporary like old time music circles, sure. but is less uh, maybe less well documented in earlier recordings. And this is a sure. cool example of uh, of where it shows up. Does that sound fun? That sounds great. Okay. I did a actually I did a workshop a few weeks ago that I just called Fork a Deer the workshop. And we we listened to a bunch of versions of Fork a Deer and sort of climbed our way through the parts, like two parts, three parts, 
four parts. Turns out there isn't actually a four-part version. It's like either two, three, five, or six. Um, anyway, it was fun. So f there's, there's a lot to chew on with a tune like Fork and Deer. Yeah. Let's see. Fork and Deer. Okay, this particular version comes from, uh, or is inspired by the fiddling of Charlie Bowman who's uh, one of the cabins he lived in. You can still go visit just down the road in Gray, Tennessee. So he's a pretty uh, relevant, relevant fiddler to us around here. And he plays these two parts that we're probably pretty familiar with and already associate with Fork a Deer. And then after a few times through cycling through those two parts, he, he sort of switches gears and plays these other three parts a few times. And then goes back home to the regular parts. Um, and they're fun. They're good fun. Okay, here we go. Visit Kalia's band's website at BillAndTheBells.com to pre-order their new album, Happy Again. And while you're there, check out the new music video for their titular song for your daily dose of upbeat country angst and balloons. It's great. You want to check it out. And make sure to like and follow Bill and the Bells on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're interested in studying with Kalia, email kalia.yagel at gmail.com to contact her for private lessons or take a workshop with her at the Handmade Music School. And of course, she's a professor at the East Tennessee University Bluegrass Old Time and Roots Music Program. So go check out what they've been up to over there. All that is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. You can support Get Up in the Cool by sharing the show with a friend or sharing and liking the video posts on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and YouTube. And if you're able, please help fund this podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. 
You can order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up In The Cool's merch store. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional claw hammer banjo series. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set, available in all the same places as Get Up In The Cool. And again, everything I just mentioned, it's linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up In The Cool.